Hey, this is Book Circle Online. I'm your host, Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Stephen Metcalf. He is a playwright, screenwriter, and author, and his new book is called The Practical Navigator. Stay tuned. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hey Stephen, how are you? I'm doing well. It's nice to be Good. here. Good, yeah. Thank you for having. Thank you for having us. <laughs> thank you for having us in the book. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Welcome. Um, so I know it says in the book, but for everyone at home who doesn't know, can you explain what the American Practical Navigator is that the title comes from? Ah, uh, yes. Well, um, the American Practical Navigator was first written by a guy named Nathaniel Bowditch in the late 1800s, and it is considered the Bible of marine navigation. And it has been expanded upon and added to over the years so that these days now it entails things like, uh, you know, satellite navigation, uh, computer navigation, all those things. But at the beginning was back in the day of sailboats. Oh, my God. And so how are you familiar with that to begin with? Uh, my father actually was in the maritime industry growing up. And so I always had some interest in it. And then literally I just stumbled upon it one day while I was just reading about something else. Oh, really? And as I read it, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is a... This, to me, sounds like a great title just for the art of navigating through life. Yeah. I mean, I love the definition of navigation that you had in the book. I, um, I wrote it down. Uh, navigation is the process of charting a course from one place to another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's lovely. It's no pressure. It's simple. Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> so did you start out with this metaphor um, or did it arise from like the story writing? Uh, I think it kind of came to me about a third of the way through. Oh really? Yeah, I was I was working on the book and I was had been thinking about it and it just suddenly seemed something uh, that I could use, especially as I started reading Bowditch's Practical Navigator. Uh, there were pieces uh, that just seemed to fit, and it broke the book into sections for me. Oh wow! And I mean, there's so much water imagery in the book. Did mm -hmm. you go back and like add more into it? After no, you... really. No, I live uh, I live near the ocean down in uh, near San Diego, California, and so the water imagery was always going to be a part of it. Oh, that's fascinating because, I mean, the water imagery and, like, the dreams and the flashbacks and mm -hmm. his father is in the Navy. Um, how did you... I was going to say, how did you not go overboard? <laughs> Sorry. Um, how did you not, like... How much was too much? How did you know how to gauge that? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I really don't think I was thinking about it. I, I mean, I knew, you know, uh, my protagonist, Michael Hodge, is a surfer. Yeah. Uh, the surf culture is everywhere in the beach communities of Southern California especially around San Diego, um, you are constantly meeting uh, people who are ex-Navy in San Diego. Um, and so I think that, that just sort of seeped into the locale of the book. At the same time, it really wasn't, it isn't about sailing and it's not about boating, anything like that. It's, again, it's about the idea of navigating. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the metaphor, I guess we can call it, just because it wasn't in your face. Yeah. It wasn't like every line ending with like water and sand. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really liked the character of Michael because um, his situation is kind of fascinating to me. As you said, he's a surfer mm -hmm. and he's very good at it. Mm -hmm. He worked his butt off and accomplished a lot. He traveled the world. And then before he was 30, it, it ended. Yes. Uh, what happened to him is, uh, and again, this is fiction, but uh, he sort of crashed and burned. He uh, had an accident that broke his knee that gave him a very severe uh, head injury. And he came out of that really having lost his edge 
And as we see in the beginning of the book, he's at a point now where he literally is afraid of the water. Yeah. I'm just fascinated with like that time in your life where you had one goal and you kind of reached it and you mm-hmm. still have the rest of your life to go. So kind of the question is like, what now? Yeah. And also what happens when that's taken away from you? Yeah. 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 It was that, is that something you've had like been thinking about a lot or like where'd that come from? I guess. Uh, like the restart of life. I don't know. It's a good question. I think, um, you know, the, the image of the surfers, I mean, again, you know, I, I'm not a surfer. My son, uh, who's 19, is an avid surfer. And, uh, but you are always seeing them out there on the water. And it's really something to see. And I, I knew that was something that I found that very, very compelling. Um, and at the same time, I did not want to make that Michael's profession. Uh, but I wanted to, to be a part of his life. And I wanted him to have been good at it. And so the idea that it was something that he had and because of injury, because of something traumatic, it was taken away from him. Uh, that was part of his history. And he had to start over. That's what I really sort of was interested in. Yeah. I Yeah, I came across. I thought it was really great. I also love that he's figuring out his life and he has his own baggage and his relationship with Fari. Mm-hmm. They're like baggage and... They could only go so far in the relationship, but it was far enough for for a certain time. It for felt just very time. adult yeah. and realistic. Yeah. I don't see that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> also, Michael is a single father yeah. raising a child. Um, and that's so uncommon, that narrative, when the mother hasn't died. Uh-huh. That's interesting. I mean, I don't know how that evolved. Um, you know, I should say, you know, I have a son. My son, who's the surfer, is on the autism spectrum. Uh, he's 19 now, and we are very, very proud of him. And I say we because I've been happily married for 26 years. So why I chose to make this protagonist a single father, I really don't know. Um, it just seemed to open up more possibilities uh, for what he was going through. I say that's fascinating to me because to me it read kind of like a critique of fathers and popular culture now because... Mm-hmm they kind of appear like the doofus dads. Mm. And I don't know if it's like the rise of feminism, which obviously I agree with, uh-huh. but sometimes like this powerful mom figure, then they have to have like the dad who can't accomplish anything, uh-huh. let alone like tie his father, or his son's shoes yeah. just to counteract that. Especially in culture, or yeah. sorry, in commercials. Yeah. You know, they're marketing to women and housewives. Yeah. And so like, look how dumb the man is. Well, I uh, in my first uh, novel, The Tragic Age, which has an 18-year-old protagonist, um, he talks at length about the fact that, uh, you know, in in so many television shows, the kids are the adults and the parents are the kids. I mean, they're just totally off the wall, and the kids are the ones who make mature, sophisticated decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we talked about your son is on the autism scale, as is the, uh, the main character. Um I have to wonder, the back of the book labeled um, the son as being autistic. I have to mm-hmm. wonder if if I would have clued into it mm-hmm. and when in the book, uh-huh. had that not been on the back. Interesting. Uh, I don't know. I mean, at one point uh, when the protagonist's estranged wife, Anita, returns, she isn't fully up to speed on what has happened to their son. And at one point he finally says, well, he, you know, he has Asperger's. And her reaction is, what, what's that? And it brings to mind to her, you know, it's something alarming, something dangerous, something frightening, but she doesn't really know what it is. And uh, Michael is that much further along in terms of coming to grips with what it is. Yeah. And I think that like 
being on the autism scale has such differences. Mm -hmm. So hearing the word autism can scare somebody a lot. And then Asperger's, like our concept of that is so new. Mm -hmm. Did it just come around in Uh, in the 40s? Probably in the 40s. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. Um, These days, they really are not using autism and Asperger's as much anymore. What they're using is the word spectrum. He's on the spectrum because what they're saying is that that these young people can be anywhere on the spectrum from being severely disabled to being uh, running tech companies in Silicon Valley. Yeah. <laughs> so what you're saying those labels of autism and Asperger's are becoming like outdated? A little bit, yes. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, I think so. Did, did that bother you then that it's on the back of the book? Uh, no, I think because for many, many people, uh, that's still, you know, exactly what it is. Ah. Yeah. Have you heard of, um, it's called Exceptional Minds in Sherman Oaks? Oh, my goodness. It's ringing bells, it's, but I can't say. Sorry, I'm not trying to like, yeah. trick you. No, not even a little bit. <laughs> That's on a test. Yeah. Um, but it's a vocational training school ah. for uh, kids on the spectrum yeah. and to work specifically in special effects and um, animation. Oh, that's fascinating, really. Yeah, yeah and it, they just realized that... Um, you know, oftentimes on the spectrum, you have um, issues with communication, um, but you are very detail-oriented, and yeah. that fits really in line with animation and special Absolutely. effects. And so they're really small class sizes. Um, NPR did a big story about it, like, yeah. last month. Yeah. And um, they're working on everything from... Um, afterward, they help them get them jobs, mm-hmm. and every, anything from Game of Thrones to the Avengers. Like, they're... Incredible. Yeah, we're in, like, big parts of Hollywood. It's amazing. Yeah. I brought it up just because I had never heard of the kind of um, courses that um, the character Jamie had in the book. Yes. Well, you know, one of the things I chose to do was to uh, take this at the time. Um, My son was diagnosed when he was about five. And so that would have been 14 years ago. And there was so much less knowledge then. I mean, the Internet was in its infancy. And my wife sort of said, this is the diagnosis. And I went... uh, you know, to what went online and I started to read and it was like, oh, my, I mean, it sounded like a death sentence. Yeah. And it was literally a question, okay, what do we do? How do we help him? What do we do next? And um, what happens is you start to meet people. You know, you get doctors, you get therapists, which is what happens. And one thing leads to another. And some of those therapies were things that my son, you know, went through at the time and that they still use to this day. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. The character Jamie, who's on the spectrum in the book, you said that he, or wrote, that he didn't smile until he was three. Is mm-hmm. that your experience with your son? Uh, no, that is not the experience with my son. My son, uh, if anything, was just the opposite. He was, uh, he smiled and was incredibly outgoing and laughing and probably around the age of four, stopped. And I've heard of that happening as well with other kids. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Was that hard to write a character like this? Uh, was it hard? No, it wasn't. I mean, let me put it this way. Uh, it is, there are elements of my son that have go through the prism of imagination. Mm-hmm. I was not writing about my son. Right. I was writing, I had created a character. Um, and so, no, it wasn't hard. And it especially wasn't hard to write about, you know, the, the difficulties uh, that a father who has just gotten that kind of diagnosis and is just learning how to deal with that diagnosis uh, you know, it wasn't hard to write that challenging stuff at all. Gotcha. I guess I was wondering in terms of representation. Mm-hmm. 
of people on the spectrum is so far and few between, mm-hmm. especially in books. And if it's on TV, it's being played by somebody not on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So like that can be skewed. Mm-hmm. And um, I wondered if it like felt like pressure to like quote unquote no. get it right. No, it didn't. Okay. Well, you're very healthy then. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. Um, a question regarding, uh, while we're in talk of Jamie, who is the kid uh, with spectrum. Yeah. His mother, Nita, has a history of alcohol and depression and um, panic attacks and suicidal thoughts at times. And there's a scene where her husband is saying that Jamie, their son, um, has a hard time expressing his emotions and often doesn't know how he feels. Mm -hmm. And the mom says, same, Mm -hmm. I'm the same way. Mm -hmm. Were you drawing a connection between her, like, issues with mental illness and his being on the spectrum? Um... I think an indirect uh, indirect connection, meaning she is certainly not on the spectrum, but she certainly has uh, emotional issues, you know, mental health issues, and her inability to to express what she's really feeling uh, about anything is rooted in different issues. It is not uh, it is not partly it is not in you know autism okay. spectrum stuff. Okay, yeah. that is just very surprised to me, and I, yeah. I, want, <laughs> I wanted to clarify. Yeah, um, fascinating. Mm. This is a spoiler, but <laughs> they do not end up and together at the end. Anita yeah. and Michael did. Was that always the case? Did you always know they couldn't end up together? Uh, I thought it would have been a little bit too much of a pat ending, and like a pat on the back. No, meaning <laughs> too. Um, I don't mean this in a bad way, but it would have been too much of a schmaltzy movie ending. I mean, it, to me, it would not have been real. Uh, okay. She comes to, into the picture still with so many of her issues intact, and she only begins to address them. Uh, and as she says at the end is that, you know, your mother loves you, but she's got to learn how to love herself first. And she hopefully is on that path, and she says, you know, she will come back when she has succeeded. But that was the place I wanted to take her to. I wanted to take her to a place where she could finally get on the right path. Oh, so like put her on the path, not at the end of the path. Exactly. At the end of the book, she is just beginning. You know, as we send her off into her future, I hope we have a sense that she is going to find the right path finally. Yeah, so it's not neatly tied up. No. Good, because I would have called bullshit. I would, too. <laughs> yep, I would, too. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I'm thinking of, like, the heartbreaking scene, which a lot of people have written about, is with Jamie in the bathroom. Uh-huh. Did, um, I thought it was, like, so interesting just because you chose to tell that story where we as the audience knew what was going on the entire time, mm-hmm. as opposed to making a surprise. Mm-hmm. And it just added to the feeling of dis-ease, of just, like, the repeated feeling of like, oh no, oh no, oh no. Um, and I wonder, like, was that intentional? Very much so. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to be telling that story, that incident. Uh, I wanted to have it from all sorts of different point of, points of view. I wanted it from the point of view, definitely, of Jamie, who is really sort of doing a relatively innocent thing, in a way. And then from the point of view of Michael, obviously, uh, the point of view of Anita, the point of view of the mother, Penelope, uh, the point of view of the teachers. Uh, yeah. You know, I guess this is another spoiler alert, but they think he is lost, possibly abducted. And what he is, is he's sitting in the men's room at the elementary school because he doesn't have toilet paper. Very patiently. Yeah, very patiently waiting for somebody to help him. 
Yeah, it was heartbreaking. <laughs> and it just because you're so like attached to Jamie too, um, I was because he's just so direct and concise in his language mm-hmm. when he speaks. Yeah. Like, I'd like to go now. Like, yes. this is no longer fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to go now. No pretenses. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's, uh, to some extent, that is, was my son. You can say to my son, this is, my son is an ocean swimmer. And uh, he and his teammates swam uh, the English Channel last year. And wow. they've done the Catalina Relay. I mean, it's pretty remarkable stuff. And you can say to him, these swims you're doing are remarkable. I know. <laughs> there's there's no there's no pre uh no no pretense you know? wow i love yeah, that yeah i admire that yeah it's something i'm striving to get to in my life there we go i guess not in show business <laughs> just kidding um speaking of show business yeah you've um you're a playwriter and have written many screenplays mm-hmm. um screenplays like uh beautiful joe and jackknife mm-hmm. as well as you've written the production drafts mm-hmm. for pretty woman mr mm-hmm. holland's opus um, not to assume the intelligence level of our audience, but can uh-huh. you explain just what that means that you wrote the production drafts? Yes. I, I don't think people are aware of uh, how often screenplays are written and rewritten, uh, in, especially in the studio system. Yeah. We're not talking about, uh, you know, we're not talking about a lot of independent films where they are, you know, written, written by a writer, written by a writer-director. But in the studio system, it is a constant process of literally trying to make it better. And so what often happens is uh, maybe the director comes on and he has ideas, so they'll hire another sc- uh, screenwriter to work on it. Maybe an actor comes on and they say, okay, we need to do this for him. I mean, it, it's an ongoing process. I mean, I've even heard the, the wonderful phrase, uh, you know, when you, when you approach people, you always say, well, we're still working on the script, okay? Meaning it's, it's oh. always in process. And so there's a lot of uh, writers that can be attached to any kind of a specific script. So when I say, for example, that I did the production draft of, uh, say, a Pretty Woman or Mr. Holland's Opus, what that means is that they were very high on the script and they needed, they had ideas that they wanted to address, uh, some big, some small. And so it was my draft that we ultimately took into production. And why did they not go to the original screenwriter? Just I think there's, it's very interesting. I, I, I sort of understand it. One is they're constantly looking for new ideas. Okay. You know, they really are. Even if they throw them away, if there's one new idea that works in the process, that's a good thing. I mean, it is a director's medium. It's not a writer's medium. And so you're really always trying to get the screenplay to work for the director. So... Uh, I, I work in Hollywood, I knew this, mm-hmm. but I just have to, like, it makes me suspicious mm-hmm. when a writer wins Best Screenplay for an Oscar, and I wonder how much of this did he write? That's a good question. I would suggest in many of those cases, I would give them the benefit of the doubt. Really? I really would. Um, Is their name still on the script because of, like, Writer's Guild rules? Writer's Guild rules, And yes. they were the first one. Uh, well, again, the Writers Guild has very specific uh, rules as to what qualifies uh, a writer for credit. Uh, most of it is based in story structure. Really? Yeah. Because you wrote the production draft for, say, Pretty Woman, mm-hmm. but your name's not on it. Well, the work done on Pretty Woman, for example, it was a wonderful script by the original writer named J.F. Lawton. It was dark. It was cynical. It was scary. It ended with... Uh, the Richard Gere character abandoning Julia Roberts in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard and driving off into the night. And her final scene is she's sitting with a friend in a coffee shop getting go out and hit the streets again. Somebody had the idea that that could be a romantic comedy. I have no idea who. 
And so and they, they were right. They were. <laughs> so they were looking for somebody to do that. And um, I came in and I said, okay, well, I think this could be My Fair Lady. And you just saw the bells oh. go off. And oh. So that's what we did. We turned it into My Fair Lady. How did you see that from? I have no idea. It's just when I was reading it and I'm thinking, okay, how do you turn this into a romantic comedy? And it just seemed suddenly like, okay, it's Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle. That's a drastic change to yeah. have the original guy still getting credit and then getting additional jobs because he quote unquote wrote Pretty Woman. Well, again, we didn't change the structure enormously, but we changed the dialogue. We changed the characters in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's another wonderful writer named Barbara Benedict who added a ton of stuff when Richard uh, Gere came on board. And she did a lot of stuff for oh, that because character. that changes the character. Yeah. I mean, when I was uh, working on the script, they were talking to Robert Redford. They were talking to Harrison Ford. We went to New York City and her- had a reading of the script with Al Pacino. Can you imagine? No. I mean, yeah. And uh, so it was constantly, constantly changing. Do, you don't have to tell me how much. Do you know, though, in your, uh, how much the guy who wrote Pretty Woman made, like, versus what you made? Oh, my gosh. Well, I would suggest... <laughs> um, here's the other thing... <laughs> I think I was sort of incredibly naive. And, uh, you know, you, you turn in a statement to the Writers Guild saying what your your contribution is. And I had just come out of the theater. And the idea of taking credit for other people's work really bothered me. You know, a rewrite was a rewrite was a rewrite. And I my statement to the Writers Guild is, I think my work speaks for itself, which is probably the stupidest thing anybody could have ever done. However, back in 1990, 91, no one could, you could never have foreseen what the royalties were going to be off of DVDs and being on a billion channels around the world. Right. So I would suggest that, and more power to uh, Jonathan Lawton, I'm sure he gets a very healthy residual check in the mail every year. And also you never know that the actress playing the lead role will be Julia Roberts like, and end up with that career. Oh, well, I think that's... She had done a couple of great movies. She had done a movie called Mystic Pizza. I saw that. Wonderful film. And she had already shot the film um, about, oh my gosh, The Hairdressers. And it was Sally Field. and uh, Oh, Steel Magnolias. Steel Magnolias. I think she had already shot that film. So she was a real up-and-comer. Oh, she was on the way. Yeah. And they, they had her already attached to the film. They knew that they wanted her. They did, oh, not, they did not have the Richard Gere character in place, the actor for that part. Wow. At, um, is that something that's being they're trying to like quote unquote fix or is that just the way Hollywood and script writing is I think uh, it might have changed you know I haven't really worked in Hollywood now for 10 years so I, I but I would say back in the 90s that was very very much the way it was if, wow. especially in the studio system oh my god yeah. Do does writing a novel obviously the process is different and like what you put into it mm-hmm. um but does it even feel like the same beast since a script is not a finished product? It is meant to be read aloud and shot and mm-hmm. acted. Um, I, I, I consider a screenplay sort of like a blueprint. I mean, it's almost like you're the architect. Um, I've been to a lot of readings of screenplays. They don't read well sitting around a table. Yeah. They really don't. A stage play can read incredibly well sitting around a table. It's, it can be, you know, a definitive experience. Um, I I found writing um, fiction, I wouldn't say a combination of both, but it's like, you know, I I love the idea of the characters and dialogue can come out of the theater. The idea of visual imagery and physical action can come out of writing a screenplay. And so I find that writing a novel is sort of like you're the director, you're the actor, you're the set designer, you're everything. It's a one-man show. That must be fun, though. Oh, I do like it. I really like it a lot. And, and, I mean, and, like, you're... 
cinematic background like is obviously very apparent in the writing too maybe so (laughs) (laughs) you you told stories for so long on film Mm -hmm. do you want to like return to that or is that just kind of your past one of the reasons i sort of got out of it was well it was interesting um i wrote and directed that film beautiful joe which was about 2000 um and i think a lot of writers would say that they aspire to direct yeah and i certainly did and when I finally got the gig and I got into it, it probably went as badly as it could go. But at the same time, I suddenly realized, wow, I'm not a film director. Um, I couldn't stand the hours. I couldn't stand 18-hour workdays. I didn't have the obsessive, compulsive element that I see in a lot of great directors, that they are so focused on the most minute detail. Um, I thought I worked well with the actors, which came out of the theater. But... I suddenly realized, no, I don't think I'm ever going to be a movie director. Wow. And it sort of was at a point where I really wanted to start telling my own stories. And that's what sort of led me back towards uh, fiction. Gotcha. Yeah, there's just so many cooks in the kitchen Yeah. for a movie. Oh, yeah. And like, who has the final say? Like a thousand people. Yeah. Or the execs. Yeah. My- and, and in the, my case, you know, I turned in my uh, director's cut and the producers took it and told you we did. So, you know, overdone. It's so funny. Do you still feel ownership over a movie like that when it's not your vision? I I feel great ownership over my cut. And I really liked my uh, temp music track where I pulled from, you know, lots of great films. And so, uh, and I can't stand the the track to what they did. And so I really like my my track or I like my my take on it. Which is impossible for anybody to ever see. No, yeah, I think (laughs) I might might have the only copy left. (laughs) Um, so what is coming up next for you? I heard you're writing two more books. Is that right? No, well, I'm, no? I, I, yeah, I sort of am. I'm, I'm, I have something. I've always wanted to try to write a mystery, and I'm sort of playing around with that. Um, but that's sort of my side project. I've always, I've always sort of worked on a couple of things at once. And, um, but I've started a new, uh, a new novel. And uh, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. Oh, great. I'm, any, I'm really into it. Any, like, tidbits you can share about what it's about? Oh, my gosh. Um... It's a little early to say, but it's. Uh, I think it's a. It's a. It's about an artist, a painter, and uh, he finds himself, you know, sort of in a real change of life. Okay. And um, that's what he's going through. And I, I think it's. I'm also. I, I'm also trying to write something that's kind of. I think it's going to be kind of funny. I'm trying to write funny. Okay. Who knows? I'm finding it amusing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a start, right? Your first book. YA, The Tragic Age, yeah. which I love for a YA novel name. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Practical Navigator, this painter book. It sounds like all of your work is fairly drastically different. Um, well, let me put it this way. I, I, I think my work is about... I, I would like to think, um, if there's one thing I'm good at, it is creating characters. And I think each of these you know, feature very strong characters. And the characters seem to define their own stories. Uh-huh. Um so, you know, I, I always say, you know, once I have the voice of a character, I'm off and running. Uh, but until I have that voice, I'm usually just sort of twiddling my thumbs. Oh, my God. Well, thank you very much. This was so much fun. A delight. Absolutely. For everyone who's like, find more info about you, you're not really on social media. Do you have, like, a website you want to send I do. I have to? a website. It's uh, net. Perfect. Uh, I'm on, I have a Facebook page that I people insisted I have. <laughs> 
Does anybody go to Facebook? I don't know. <laughs> Never heard of it. No. Well, thank you very much. A real pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Great. I just shook you with my left hand. Bye, guys. We'll see you next week. Uh, <laughs> if you want to find our content on iTunes, YouTube, and of course, BookCircleOnline.com. Goodbye. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menunos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to BookCircleOnline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at BookCircleOnline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle.